Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerwin. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And before we get started, I'll just mention that I'm today one of those people who's having work done at their house, and there may be lots of noise in the background. So if you hear lots of noise, it's just the work crew that couldn't be scheduled at a different time. Anyway, this week, I've really been really, really, really looking forward to having a conversation with my vet, Dr. Steve Nail. And Steve, you've been my vet for... I've been trying to think of when when we started, but basically 30 years. Yeah. And then last year, at the start of the COVID year, you had the good sense to retire. <laughs> so we've been missing our conversations that we have at the barn. Yes. Um, yes, very definitely. And one of the things that I thought would be interesting, now that you've retired, and you can look back over an arc, quite an arc of time, as can I, in the horse world, is to really look at some of the changes that we've both seen over the years and some of the changes and some of the things that were normal in the horse world that Dominique isn't has no clue about. Like we were we met I mean one of the one of the memories that stands out for both of us was that visit for Peregrine when he was colicking, and he must have been three, I'm guessing, at that time. He was, because we you were at Pine Hill, so we had yeah. moved from the farm where he was born, and so I'm guessing he was three, and you were there with another associate, and the struggle was trying to get a nasal tube down <laughs> and that classic what so what did Reed say as as you were both leaving the barn well on the way there he, he said to me Dr. Dr. Clodge said to me he said you got to be careful because he said this horse can eat your lunch <laughs> so he he had forewarned me that we might have a difficult time so that was that was when you met Peregrine that yes. night. Ah, okay. Yeah, that was the first okay. time I ever met him. So I, because I couldn't remember who was so so. All right, so that was the introduction. Yes. Yes, and and of course for Peregrine, the the reason he was so difficult, we discovered, I think, in that visit, for tube worms, is the the tube was too large for him, and when we went out and got the uh, smaller pony sized tube. It yes. went down, but that brings up the whole subject of tubeworming, because this is one of those looking back 30 years, what has changed in the horse world. So Peregrine was old enough to have been born in the age of tubeworming. And yeah. Dominique, I don't think you, you had any clue what <laughs> tubeworming was about so well. Would... I knew about tubing horses when they were colicking to put some oil in their in their stomach, but tube warming, like to dewarm a horse. Yes. No, I. I mean, no, definitely not. And 
So I'm curious about that for sure. <laughs> right now, my own horses, I only deworm once a year in December and the other times I do, I just check their manure for a count of eggs. So two warming seems like a really long time prehistoric thing to me. <laughs> it, it, it is like the Middle Ages, isn't it? And, and so this whole arc of what has occurred in parasite control for our horses is an interesting subject. So beginning back, so let's go back to tuberming. Could you describe that charming? And from your perspective, that must have been, you know, you start out your day and you think, okay, I've got this thoroughbred farm with how many yearlings who've never been to Burma and that I've got to deal with. And this, then I go to this lesson barn that is 60 horses, all of whom have to be two-wormed. It must have just been grim. And this was like four times a year? At least twice. At okay. Least. So and what was it? <laughs> but, well, you know, Alexandra, you made, me, you made me think about this. And this was one thing that came up was the whole deworming uh, thing and all the different changes. And, you know, I can, I can go back because when I retired, I was at year 50. So I've got about a 20 year head start on the 30 years that you and I had yes. to look, look at. And, and one thing I started to frame in my mind was uh, you know, all the changes I've seen and what was the overall impact on, on the horse's health, on his usable lifespan. Because when I first started in practice, uh, an old horse was mid-teens to 20. Yeah. You know, by, by that time, they were an old horse. And by the time I retired, I mean, we had some that were verifiable uh, in their 40s. We had, we had a couple that I knew of that likely were 50, if you could have verified it. And we had a whole bunch, certainly, in their, in their late 20s and, and into their 30s. And one thing I think that got them there was the whole change in the deworming and the effectiveness of the dewormers that we had. The, the tube worming or the nasogastric tubing, uh, you know, it, it was the best that we had. Yes. It did require a couple of things. It required some horsemanship in, in, order, in order to uh, restrain these horses because many times uh, we certainly didn't. I'm trying to, this would be saying I had to, Edit out. I'm trying to fend off one of my cats who, who is bound and determined she's going to walk across this laptop and she won't go away. So if you see me poking at something, it's like one of my cats named Chips right now who's not being much of a help. But you know, the thing, the thing was that it certainly re required in most cases the application of a twitch. And it required someone that was good to help you. Uh, in order to help restrain the horse. It required the cooperation of the horse, certainly once the twitch was applied, and it required somewhat your skill in being able to, to pass uh, that nasogastric tube. So it was a production. And, yes. and certainly my hands and shoulders show <laughs> that, I, that I did plenty of those in, in the past. But the other thing, Part of it was that the dewormers that we had at that time were adequate, but they certainly did not perform to the level of the dewormers that we have today. 
And I think that, that the impact on the overall health of the horse uh, and then the knowledge that we've found over the years that, that, they, that about 80% of the horses don't need to be dewormed that often. So the, the, you're, you're right to talk about and think about having to tube deworm like what we went through, Alexandra, certainly yes. seems like uh, uh, medieval times. And you know, the interesting thing to me is that with the advent of the good sedatives and tranquilizers that came along, you know, we didn't have to use that twitch that often. And there were some times, let's say, maybe I had a laceration in an eyelid or something like that where, where you needed to stabilize that head a little better. And I would go to the truck and I would get my, get my twitch out and the owner would say, what's that? <laughs> they, they'd never really seen one. Well, I remember very well the first time I came in a barn because I came to the two horses very late in my life. And when I saw that thing, I, I had no idea what it was. And when I saw it used for the first time by my vet, I was a little bit traumatized to say, yeah, yeah. To, to, be, to, to be sincere. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, I, I, you don't see it anymore. So, or maybe it was just in my barn that we kind of, no, you don't, you don't really see it anymore, do you? No. It's, no. It, I mean, there's certainly certain situations where you use it. I think the thing about the twitch that you learned pretty quickly was to apply it to the point of restraint and not to the point of punishment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, you learned that pretty quickly. You read the body signs, you read the eyes, you read a lot of things to know. And because certainly if you applied it to the point of punishment, then the horse... Was, was to react. He was. He wasn't. He wasn't going to be happy about the whole situation. It certainly taught you a degree of horsemanship to read these horses to be able. You know, one of my things, and after I got to a point in my career where I where I had able-bodied assistants, I thought, how in the world did I? ever get through and survive some of these situations when it was when it was me the owner and the horse and you know you had to think about not only your own safety but the safety of the owner and certainly of an assistant but you know the other thing alexander that dominique that i thought about too was as we moved away from the dewormer to the paste dewormers and to the feed dewormers I still remember the very first one that came up and, it, and the active ingredient was dichlorovos. And dichlorovos was basically an insecticide that they mm -hmm. had effectiveness against intestinal parasites in the horse. It smelled to high heaven. And when you would put it in the feed of a horse, I, I could still remember owners saying, oh, Doc, I dewormed him the last time with, with the uh, new feed dewormer. And I'd say, how long did it take him to eat it? <laughs> if they didn't eat it in about the first hour, it really was not going to be effective. Oh, Doc, he went, you know, he went five days, but I didn't feed <laughs> him anything else. And it's like, look, Charlie, it didn't really work at that mm. point. 
time. So we certainly progressed and we progressed pretty rapidly. And uh, I, I, I don't think that there was an equine veterinarian on the, on the planet that did not applaud when we finally got away from, from having to shove those stomach tubes. And yeah. I've had enough hooves fly past my head and uh, actually had an associate years ago when I was still in Indiana that got, got hurt pretty badly when a horse, she was trying to pass a stomach tube on and, and was being restrained by a very good horseman. And just one of those accidents where she, she got hurt pretty badly. Uh, I, I remember one horse at one of the barns as literally as soon as the vet truck was in the driveway, mm. that the horse would start spinning in its stall. Yeah. And so yeah. when you started to see horses that were born after the age of, of tube worming, did you see a change in their comfort level with you? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Because um, certainly yeah. Peregrine had his impression of vets was formed pretty early mm -hmm. and it was centered in large part around things like the tube worming which were extremely for him unpleasant aversive hard to handle so you were you were never popular with him <laughs> <laughs> that's, true. that's um, true but i just wonder if if you know if we started to look at the horses that did not have that as part of their routine where it's it's vaccinations. They would see you twice a year for vaccinations, but vaccinations were not associated with tuberming. Was there a difference? Um, well, maybe you'll end up having to edit this comment out. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past, is that, is that unfortunately on some levels, as time has gone on, we've lost a degree of horsemanship. And we've lost a degree of, and not, not in everyone. Uh, the horse, he, in some people's mind, he was a big dog. And okay. they, didn't, they didn't understand his psychology. And so, the ones that probably were the most problematic was that horse that didn't understand space with, with his handler. Some of them were under-exercised. You know, some of them, as, as you and I have talked on more than one occasion as far as the poisoned cue uh, situation was the uh, misplaced reward uh, on the behavior. So to say that there was a, a, an overall change because we weren't pushing stomach tubes anymore to deworm, uh, for some horses, certainly. But again, I, I think, unfortunately, it, some of that was, uh, was a misunderstanding of what horsemanship really was all about. And so what would you say horsemanship in the ideal world? What would be good horsemanship? Oh boy, now you're really gonna get me in trouble. Yes, <laughs> but you see you're retired so I can ask you these questions. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, I think it's to understand the psyche of a horse that you know, he 
he is a prey. He's, he's the prey. He's not the other. And so therefore, he's, he's always a little bit looking for the escape route. Or he's, he's a little leery about the situation that you're going to put him in. And, um, you know, as a veterinarian, you learn pretty quickly to read body language in the horse and in the owner. And you learn pretty quickly how to approach them. And, you know, I was always taught you approach the horse at the neck because he can see you the best. The first thing that you don't do is reach up and touch him on the nose or the face. And yet, you find, you find horses that fall into this category where people don't understand horsemanship. But for the thing that they're always doing is handling their face. Well, they can get away with it, but I can't. But you know, they're not certain of who I am. And so being able to, to, to have a horse that's been properly handled and taught you know, these are the parts of my body that's going to be handled by uh, by a stranger. Uh, I think we lost we lost part of that. I think we also, again, lost a degree of understanding that a horse was really made to be outside moving around. I think too many horses get get stalled for far too long, uh, and then. You know, the, the line between discipline and reward many times, and not, not discipline meaning a punishment, but helping that horse to understand that, that uh, when you pick his foot up, you expect him to be able to pick the foot up and be held, that he's not going to pick it up and slam it down. So subtle things like that. And again, they're, they're not big dogs. I know there's been a lot of work here recently on how horses learn, but I do think they certainly learn differently in a way in what, in what a dog does and how that owner reinforces behavior and applies some discipline when it needs, when it needs to be done. And, you know, I've said to you on more than once, you know, the little tips on uh, clicker training that, I gleaned from you saved my bacon more than one time, uh, you know, to, to get that horse to, to target my hand, to get that horse to target my hand and get a reward, to be able to get up and apply pressure on his neck. And I've had some horses where people say, you know, doc, you're not going to get close to giving him a vaccination. And, you know, when I'd walk in a stall, yeah, they're probably right. But with a little bit of, of work over a few minutes, you know, it's like, wow, you know, uh, just supplying some techniques that they, they've not thought of or, or, or rushed through, tried to rush through in the past. Uh, again, it's hard, hard to explain, but. Uh, but you, you raise a good point for those of us who are thinking about training them. You know, one of the things that is important for our horses is to train them to be handled by their healthcare team, by people they do not know or do not know, you know, are not there on a regular basis. Farriers, vets, 
lab technicians who are during a lameness exam, the person who's, who's leading the horse up and down so that you can watch with your vet. All of the, you know, that that is something that can be actively trained and we need to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both, like both for the horse and both to make, both so that we get better care for our horse, because certainly a horse who is cooperative with his care is going to get better care than one who's giving you a hard time. Yes. Oh, yeah. definitely. Oh, definitely. 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 I think one other thing sometimes people don't understand, uh, too, that I've found for some horses is um, the stall is their castle. And some horses really don't like you coming into the castle. The owner maybe has invited you in, but the horse has not invited you in. And you've either got to work to be able to establish a degree of trust to allow him to work on you in the, or allow you to work on him in the stall. Or some of those horses are far better to bring them out into the aisle way uh, to where it's more of a neutral, a neutral territory. And uh, so again, I think that's part of just part of that observation or training process. And I know context matters. So body language is very much context driven. And so when people say, oh, my horse had his ears back, he must be angry. It's like, um, you know, uh, one body part does not tell the whole story and the body part disconnected from the context from the situation tells you nothing but what were some of the what were some of the tells what were some of the things that you looked for so that you knew you were still in that safety zone I'll tell you a little bit of a funny story uh, years ago when I was in the Indianapolis area I was the attending veterinarian for a for a large quarter horse breeding farm and we stood a couple of uh, world champion quarter uh, horses. And so we got a lot of mares in from everywhere. And I go in the driveway one day and I, and I look out in the paddock and there's the manager uh, practically down on his hands and knees, crawling or basically crawling into this group of brood mares uh, to obviously try to catch one. And I saw him catch it. And he brought it. I said, Tim, what are you doing? And he said, Doc, don't you remember how the Indians caught the wild horses? Part of it was they made themselves smaller. And basically, the horse was not as frightened of them. He said, Think about this. If you got a pony in the paddock and he needs to be caught, who's he more likely to stand still for? A big, tall adult that goes out or the kid who's smaller? And I thought, well, Tim, yeah, you've got a good point. And so one thing that I, that I did find sometimes in horses in, in a stall that were not happy about you was just make myself a little smaller. Mm. No, no, not, not. Remember that I didn't want to stand up real big and tall and I didn't want to walk straight in on him. You know, as far as tells, I think one thing that that I like to read were their eyes. I, I think I think the eye tells you a lot. 
Um, she'll learn to read it. You know, if it's if it's soft and relaxed, then you've got a little more confidence that that the rest of the horse's body language is going to be a little soft and relaxed. If it's got that kind of a hard, glossy look, and and uh, his his body's going to be tense. He's 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 not sure what what you're going to do. Certainly wanting to pace the ears. Sometimes I I didn't. I didn't set a lot of stock in where the ear position happened to be. I probably read read the eye and the overall tenseness in the body. So clicker training. Besides Alex, Alexandra, did you have did you encounter it more and more in your practice, or was it was it Alexandra only that you? No, I you know, you know there were. I think over time, over time, there were more and more people. And again, as Alex and I talked on more than one occasion was, I think Alex made a statement one time that stuck with me that clicker training's for every horse, but it's not for every owner. And uh, I, I think this lack of understanding of, of how to apply or when to apply the reward uh, and the click uh, was probably the, the the biggest thing that I would see. You know, when I would hear some people, I'd say, oh, you know, I tried clicker training with him, and it didn't work. And I'd say, well, did you consult with somebody like Alexandra? Oh, no, you know, I got online. I did this, I did that. How long did you stick with it? No, you know, not very long. Um, so I think the, 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 the issue again, I found was talking to people was one, they did not understand how to apply things. And Alexandra and I can probably both come up with a few names that we won't name immediately <laughs> of, of people that we've worked with that, that did not understand how to apply. Which is which is true of all methods. I mean, you can also have people who don't understand when to release the pressure. Right. And so, you know, I think the lack of understanding and applying it wrongly is probably, I don't know if it's more in the clicker training, but it's certainly something you see in all different methods. Mm. Do you remember that, was, was Alex the first person you saw using it or do you remember? Yeah, yeah. He I, was? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, will, I will say this even, and, and Peregrine did not become perfect, but over time for me, hopefully Alex will agree that he became a trustworthy. Mm -hmm. You know, he with with the clicker training that Alex did with him. Well, I think one time we even did some localized nerve blocks with him. Yes. And yes. and you know he, if it had been six or eight years earlier, there'd been no way. That that, that was one of my favorite stories because so you came in when you saw you met him when he was three probably and we had just recently moved and that was that horrible stretch when he was colicking a lot so he was 
maybe two and a half, three, it doesn't matter. And then you left the area for right. a couple of years. Yeah. Most, most unacceptable. Um, <laughs> so you were, you were away during what I call the great crash when he got Potomac horse fever. So that can be another subject, all these new diseases that have crept into our <laughs> equine reality. Never mind the coronavirus, there's Potomac horse fever and all the rest of it. Uh -huh. And he was one of the very first horses in this area who got Potomac horse fever. Uh -huh. And it went to his feet. And he was, a, he was basically three years getting back into soundness. And you came in sort of on the tag end of all of that. You were back in the area. And I needed nerve blocks done to monitor what was going on with those front feet. Yeah. And you came to the barn. You, had, you were, had been on call the night before. So you had been out on emergencies the night before. <laughs> Peregrine was the first call of the morning. The next call was going to be a big thoroughbred yearling farm where you had to do vaccinations and all of that. So you were, I'm sure, not looking forward to <laughs> wrestling with yearlings. And there was Peregrine. And because of his stifles, and at that stage, his stifles had only recently stopped locking. Yeah. So he was now, I want to say he's eight years old now. And you had to do a nerve block. And so Peregrine was out in the barn aisle, yeah. and you bent down and put the needle into his ankle, and Peregrine was standing absolutely perfectly, he was. four feet on the ground. And he quivered his skin and popped the needle out. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I I remember that. We'll see if, we'll see how our memories match up of this two same two two different people remembering the same event. But he's standing still, he's standing perfectly. So, you know, you can't really get mad at a horse who's standing four feet on the ground doing what you're asking him to do. But I could see that you were tired and you were not <laughs> looking forward to these this thoroughbred yearling farm. And what you didn't need was a wrestling match with Peregrine. So you tried again, you put the needle in, and he quivered his skin and he popped it out. And I can still see your shoulders just with one of those, oh, this horse. I think I was, I was thinking about survivability. <laughs> yes, yes, because we both also knew this history that he had hmm. early on the combination of the purmine and the colics and trying to get a tube down his throat mm -hmm. that was too big and where he had fought like mad because what other choice, you know, when you're trying to stick a tube down that isn't going down, right. you're, you're, he wasn't left with much of a choice <laughs> but to try and get away. And... And so we, he had this history in him that if you were going to bring a twitch out, you were very likely going to have a fight. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. And know. so I said to you, you know, there's this tool that we're not using. Right. And so I explained the just the bare bones of the clicker training, and I had you 
run your hand down Peregrine's leg and then clicked and I had you feed him. And that was the critical piece. Yeah. I had yeah. you feed him. And then we had you run his hand down a little further down his leg. I clicked, you fed a little further and then you were ready. It's like, no, no, not quite ready. <laughs> not, not yet. And you ran your hand down another time or two and then it's okay, now you can put the needle in. And he stood beautifully and did not quiver. No, I, 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 I have a, a memory on that. And, and, you know, Dominique, the other thing, going back to owners who have tried to do things on their own and not really understand, I still clearly remember a horse that the owner had totally poison cued this horse. You know, when the horse slammed its foot on the ground, that's when she rewarded him. You know, she she could not get the timing any worse. And and I was talking to her farrier one day, and we weren't we weren't there. And I and he said to me, he said, "Oh my God!" He said, "I just went to to do do that horse," and he said, "You know, he's awful." I said, "Listen." I learned how you deal with that. He said, how? I said, you ask her to go to the house and get you a bucket of warm water. While she's gone, the horse will be perfect and you can get the work, you can get the work done. And, and I don't know, it was several months later and, and, uh, and uh, you know, I had to use the trick. I said, you know, could you go to the house and get me a bucket of warm water? And she said, you know, that's weird. You know, last time the barrier was here, I had to go get him a bucket of water. <laughs> I don't think she ever caught on. And, and, and the house was quite a distance, so it took her a while to go get a bucket of warm water. But this, this horse, when she was present, had been so poisoned on his cues. And she would stand there. She was there. You know, she was going to do the quicker thing. But she always was off just enough that she rewarded the bad behavior mm. every time. Right. And uh, but no, but go back. Alexander was was the first one I never really encountered with it. And uh, and I remember you came back. It was probably a week or two after that. And you were doing flexion tests, which yes. are never fun for horses. Where you're holding up the hind leg and you commented afterwards that that was the most cooperative that peregrine had been with you i remember that definitely yeah you know i i i i like that because i know for a lot of veterinarian if they see someone who does clicker training they'll just roll their eyes up and say Okay, that again, you know, I'll have to tolerate that or whatever, or go get me a, a bucket of water or whatever. <laughs> but I like that, you know, the openness to, to, to say that what's, what has, there's a difference between clicker training done right and clicker training done wrong. And so it's not to throw away the clicker training, but to have that nuance that as with any method, like we were discussing before, that yeah, some owners are not there yet, or they're they're doing it really badly, 
And it's not about the clicker training. It's about the knowledge of the, of the owner. And I hope that more and more the veterinarians have that kind of openness and can see the difference that it's not so much about the clicker training itself, but about, you know, the level of knowledge of the, the owner. Yeah. And it's the same for the, the farriers because they go through the same things. The, the general takeaway, I would say, is for, for everyone, that if you're going to explore a training method, we won't give it a name, it mm-hmm. could be any training method. And over the 30, 50 years that, Steve, that you've been looking at the horse world, there have been a lot of different training methods that have come down the pike. But if you're going to explore them, then really, truly go through the process of educating yourself well. Because whatever the training method is, getting a YouTube clip or magazine article that's 500 words long or something, it that's insufficient. But the current status, Alex, is that most professionals are uh, educated in natural horsemanship, negative reinforcement, not in clicker training and not in positive reinforcement. They may be starting to include some rewards, but generally, you know, the knowledge is more natural horsemanship. That's what I've seen anyway. All the professionals that I've worked with They all use some kind of negative reinforcement method. And so for them to have the openness to say, okay, there's something else out there, you know, there's there's a a validity to this. And and I think as the vets and the professionals see the results when it's well done, that this openness will become greater and greater, you know, because because it was certainly easier on your shoulders to lean down, stroke Peregrine's leg a couple of times, feed him a couple of cookies, and then put the needle in. That's right. Then it would have been to have a wrestling match trying to get him to stand still using a twitch, and that wouldn't have worked because he no. you would have you would have left not having not being able to uh, do the nerve block. No. Um, you know, Dominique, uh, I think you bring up. Uh, a really valid point about acceptance by equine professionals as far as, as no matter what the training method happens to be. I, I guess I'm going to, from, from my viewpoint, the issue that the veterinarian and the farrier have is that we've come in and we've got a job to do. And and now then you've got a horse here that's not gonna behave. And he may even be, his behavior may even be dangerous. And, and one thing that, you know, took me a while maybe to develop that, but if you've got a truly dangerous horse, you walk away. I always told my younger vets, you haven't got anything to prove. You walk away, you walk away. And I, and I follow some discussion boards on online and, and, I, and I see, you know, where people are going out to accept the challenge of the feral horse or the untrained horse. And it's like, you know, you're risking your life. Mm-hmm. But again, I think part of this openness to, to the, these training methods is unfortunately 
there are those times when you when you show up and that horse has got that bad behavior mm-hmm. and that, and now then what what are you going what am I going to have to do to be able to get my job done mm-hmm. am, am I going to is some of that going to be going to be negative and I'll tell you I learned a long time ago that you can't apply some of this negative some of this negative reinforcements or negative things and, and really get anywhere. And I hate to admit, I mean I've whacked my share of horses over over time. But as time went on, you finally get smart enough to realize that there's there's other ways to deal to deal with it. We we use negative reinforcement though not necessarily in the in the sense of I mean that could be like a two hour conversation but not right. necessarily in the sense that you whack your horse because it can be very mild um, I think a good horsemanship will use negative reinforcement in a very mild way correct uh, yeah but it's it's different than rewards but it's I'm I'm seeing that there's more openness and I think. For the owner too, they have to realize that, like you said, there's a job to be done and you have to, there's a point where, you know, you have to speak up for your horse, but there's a point I think where you have to trust your professional and let them do their work too. Mm-hmm. So it's a conversation and it's great when you find a vet that you can have the conversation or a professional that you can have the conversation with. The back and forth, you know, it's not just, don't give any treats to your horse when I'm there. Um, and, you know, of course, when you have someone like Alex, it's probably easier to get the conversation because you have a lot of depth of knowledge there. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. So I want to move off of training for a moment. Yeah, though we'll yeah. probably get back to training. So back to the Middle Ages, yeah. uh, the Dark Ages, Oh, wait, well, before you leave the warming, though, because just for all our listeners, because I know a lot of people still do uh, dewarming three, four times a year. And I'd like to hear you on this, because I know from myself, I don't do it anymore. Um, you know, on uh, the advice of my vet, we we do, do you say coprology in English? I don't know how What's the word in English? What's the word? When you, you test the manure to see how many eggs there are in the manure. What's the oh, word? Copology, uh, we say in, in French. Uh, would be a, be, do a fecal. A fecal count, yeah. Um, so we do that three times a year. The only time we don't do the fecal count is in December because there's a kind here in Quebec anyway, there's a kind right. of, of warm that cannot be detected in the fecal analysis. And so we do dewarm in December. And the other times we do the fecal count and in my three horses, and the vet had said that to me, it's always, there's always one carrier in a, in a herd. It's usually the same horse. And what I've seen is, and I've had many big herds, you know, where uh, during when we had the horses from the show, the Cavalia show, what we had was a stable herd of retired horses. And you would see the fecal count would, there would be horses that would never need deworming. And there would be this one horse that would occasionally need it. And then when the horses from the tour came in, because they had traveled in all different paddocks, 
that kind of messed up everything because they would bring back, you know, different parasites that they had picked up along the tour and that would change um, the situation. But now that I'm no longer, um, you know, that I don't own Cavalia anymore, I only have my three horses and it's the same thing. They are, Pico is the carrier. My, my, there's one horse who's the carrier and I have to dewarm him from time to time. The other two, I never have to do it. The, the count is always under what is acceptable. And so it's great because the horses don't get all this chemical inside of them unnecessarily. It's also good for um, not promoting resistance of the, um, the parasites that get used to all the, the dewarming chemicals. And so what do you recommend yourself to your clients? Do you do that? Or are they open to it? Because I know some people, they say, well, I'm going to have to pay for the manure count and then I may have to pay for the dewarming. So it's twice the cost. But I know for myself, when I even look at the cost, it, it's, it has not cost me more to do it this way than uh, to systematically dewarm three, four times a year. So what's your position on this? Well, I think my, my position is, is certainly similar to what your veterinarian is saying. Uh, so where, where did all this, where did all this begin? Well, you know, we used to, if you go back to when the pace warmers and, and the good uh, feed through dewormers uh, first appeared, you know, people were going at it every eight weeks, uh, sometimes wow. or out to maybe even out to 90 days, depending on what, what the, the, the product was. So as time's gone on, like anything else, the parasite began to adapt. And so we started to see uh, resistance, which when the ivermectin products uh, came out, uh, it was felt like that the likelihood of, of them uh, developing resistance was pretty low. The other products like Fibendazole, um, Extrangid, uh, and probably that feed-through Extrangid helped get it off the rails because so many people uh, used it. But the issue that started to pop up was that we began to see a resistance and even to uh, ivermectin. And if you go like way, way, way back when I first started uh, in practice, one of the uh, big causes of colics that could become fatal colics were aneurysms mm -hmm. of the cranial mesenteric artery uh, caused by migration of the strongyle mm -hmm. and lodging in the tissue. Now, the ivermectins in particular killed those migrators off, so we got away from having those aneurysms. But I've talked to surgeons here in the last few years that have said, you know, we're seeing these aneurysms uh, Again. Re re reappear. Uh, so as we began to realize, and then you go to the other species, cattle and sheep uh, with the ivermectins in sheep, uh, there's practically nothing that doesn't have uh, uh, resistance to it. As a matter of fact, the sheep are looking at and have been able to develop in some breeds, uh, at least some bloodlines uh, that are somewhat resistant to the intestinal parasite. 
So we're, we were going down this road of where there's nothing new in the development of, of dewormers, far on the horse, and we're starting to see even those that we thought would never have any resistance begin to have resistance. And so people began to look at it and say, you know, do we need to deworm this often? How do we predict when and where? And that's when we started to look at these fecals and look at, at, at populations, get enough, get enough horses tested to where there's some predictability. And then that's where I think it's a lot of things in life started to show up. And I think that 80-20 rule still pretty well holds. And about 80% of your horse population out there does not need to be dewormed that often. And there's about a 20% group that are going to be the carriers and the shedders. And once you identify them, then you can target your deworming just like you do. And, you know, I can't tell you now off the top of my head, but I mean, we ran hundreds, if not thousands of, of fecals each year at, uh, at Oakencroft. And we would we'd see it that 80-20 rule pretty well. Uh, applied as to who needed to be dewormed frequently and who and who didn't. Uh, certainly, as some horses begin to age and the immune system doesn't function as well, or you see the older horse that develops Cushing's and uh, something that, that begins to immunocompromise them, then some of these horses will change over and they will start to have some issue as far as, as the count shatters. And you'll see that in the fecal count if, you still, yes. if you're doing it regularly. And just so people understand how it works, it's very simple. I mean, you just take a little bit of manure in a little baggy bag, a little <laughs> bag, a transparent that you have in your kitchen. You just put your horse's name on it. And it's about here, it's probably 30 bucks per horse. Okay. The vet will call you a few days afterwards and tell you, well, this is how many eggs there are in the manure. And so you need or you don't need to deworm. And so it's as simple as that. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it, it's a process that uh, certainly my lab techs that when they've got, you know, a hundred fecal samples sitting in the refrigerator, <laughs> we're not, we're not looking forward to, but uh, yeah, you, you're going, you're going to take uh, part of that fecal sample. You're going to suspend it in a special solution. And then you're going to uh, uh, put it in a counting chamber and you're going to have to count uh, the number of eggs that are, that are seen. And, you know, if it's not, if that fecal sample is not being looked at in a counting chamber, if it just simply uh, has a slide put over the top of it and you look in there and you say, oh, there's a lot of eggs or there's not many, that's not acceptable. Those eggs, those samples need to be run through the counting chamber. There's actually- Yeah, yeah it's very precise. They will tell yeah. you there are 232. Right. You know, it's not just like there's a lot or not a lot. Right. It's very precise. And, and, there's, there's and you a, keep it. I like to keep it in my in my book of my horses to see, yes. you know, every um, every year when I go back, I can look at how many eggs and it's different parasites at different times of, year, of the year. But it's just to say that it's an easy procedure on the owner's part 
you know, you do it when your vet comes for something else anyway, he's doing the vaccines or he's doing something else. And so it's not a big deal to do this. And it's a lot less chemical that you're putting in your horse. And it's helping out the community because it's not promoting resistance of the parasite. So yeah. I think it's a win-win unless you're really, really tight on the budget. And like I said before, overall, I don't think you're going to spend that much more money. Um, maybe no, a little bit, but not that much more. So yeah. I think it's worth And again, the thing is that we don't want to do is paint ourselves into a corner where we where we get to the point where we really don't have an effect. Anything anymore, a, yeah. A dewormer, and that, that's the path, that's the path that we were on, and uh, we still have to guard against that. Mm. That danger is not gonna go away. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, because we like our, our very elderly, healthy into their 20s, still going in their 30s horses. Yes. Do not want to go back to the dark ages of a horse is aged by the time he's 15. Or that you're, and that you're losing him yeah. because of an anevrisme or a colic or something that could yes. have been prevented with the dewarming. Yeah. This is a good place to stop for today. We're about to look back at another medical procedure that has always seemed to me as though it truly must have been invented in the dark ages. How's that for a teaser? I'm not even going to tell you what we're going to be talking about when we pick up next time in part two of our conversation with Dr. Steve Nail. I'll, I'll leave it up to your imagination to think about all the possible topics that I could choose from in terms of procedures that we were doing fairly commonly, at least in my area, about 30 years ago. Anyway, that's for next time. So... Until then, have fun with your horses. <laughs> <laughs>